As was mentioned, today we will be in Psalm chapter 42. So I'll read it for us, and then we can uh, can get started. Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in a procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Deep calls out to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you at turmoil within me? Hope in God, for again shall I praise him, my salvation and my God. In 1971, uh, Roald Dahl, wrote a famous children's novel called Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And in 1971, that uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory novel was turned into a feature film starring Gene Wilder. A lot of us growing up probably read the book or saw the movie. And if you haven't read the book or seen the movie, the kind of general idea of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is this kid who wins the ticket to a chocolate factory and he goes around Uh, in the chocolate factory, learning life lessons, flowing down rivers of chocolate and and, uh, exploring the magic of how candy is made. It's a a generally children's-based film and movie. Because of that though, there's kind of one scene in the film in particular that always struck me as weird. And if you've seen the film, you might know what I'm talking about. This is about, I don't know, probably a third of the way through the movie. They're going around the chocolate factory singing songs and floating down rivers of chocolate and having fun. And uh, they come to this tunnel in the chocolate factory and Gene Wilder takes the kids who won this ticket to tour the chocolate factory down the tunnel. And when they get into the tunnel, it's this dark, deep, enclosed space. And it takes a really dark turn. Gene Wilder, who plays Willy Wonka, uh, stares directly into the camera and reads like stares like this, like a a really kind of lifeless stare. And he reads this really dark poem. And while he's reading the poem on the walls of this tunnel, there are just really dark, disturbing images. So there's a there's an image of a chicken getting its head cut off. There's a worm crawling across a man's face, just random, really dark images. And then after about two minutes of Gene Wilder reading this poem and these really dark images on the side of the tunnel, they come out and the movie kind of goes back to its whimsical tone and people are singing songs and having fun and eating candy. And I just never really understood how that two minutes made the final cut for the movie because the movie and the book are generally geared towards children. We were required to read it when I was in probably third or fourth grade. But it's kind of a just interesting turn in a dark tunnel and what's generally a children's movie. 
But as I was thinking about that, I was wondering as we've been going through the Psalms that if some of us approach the Psalms as if they're a children's movie, meaning we, we have these ideas or maybe expectations that the Psalms are a place to go when we want easy to understand uplifting truths about God. And there are certainly lots of those in the Psalms. We did Psalm 23 last week. That's certainly one of them. Psalm 145, Psalm 91, Psalm 1, right? There are a lot of Psalms that have easy, understand truths that, that lift up our souls that are very easy to digest. And while that may be what we gravitate towards, the Psalms have more than just, you know, kind of a, a, a deep, a two minute kind of darkness scene like the movie Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. The reality of the Psalms is that there's a lot of darkness and, and, and hard things to grasp in the Psalms. There's a lot of sadness. There's a lot of oppression. There's a lot of what I would call generally uh, terms that, that fall under the umbrella of what the Bible would consider lament. Lament is just when people express deep feelings of grief or sorrow right alongside the description of, of what they're trying to realize who God is. And so roughly one third of the Psalms, as we read through them and as we've been going through them, obviously we haven't done all of them. But if you, do, if you were to do a survey of all of them, roughly a third of the Psalms have some element of lament. So while the classic Psalms have their place, right? Psalm 23, Psalm 145, Psalm 91, we can't lose sight of the reality that so much of the Psalms paint to or, or point to, you know, sadness and disappointment, anger, grief, things that would be considered lament. But the Psalms, while they have these common elements, I think it's not just aimless complaining. There's a purpose to the lament in the Psalms, and there's a purpose to the pain even behind this Psalm. And I think we can be comforted by that purpose if we were to just dig a bit here and see to try to find out what that is. Now, the purpose here may not jump out to us like it does in the classic Psalms, but I think we can still get there. So let's let's take a, a step back and, and set a bit of background here for what's going on and, and, and what the background is for Psalm 42. This is actually the second book of the original composition of the Psalms. So originally the Psalms were divided into five books, and this would be the beginning of the second book. So if you read Psalm 41:13, it ends with a very high note, right? Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. So a real high note ends with Psalm 41:13. And then we take a sharp corner, sharp turn, getting into book two. And this is where we kind of go down our, if we were to use the, the, the reference to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, this is where we go down the dark tunnel. But as I was saying, there's, there's more than just two minutes of that in the Psalms. It's actually a lot of it. But this is where we take a turn towards a pretty depressing, if you will, Psalm or account of, of what the psalmist is experiencing. Now, it actually, Psalm 42, even before we read it, has some, some very uh, compelling background material that makes this an, an even inter more interesting psalm. So you'll read, if your Bible has footnotes, that this psalm is attributed to the sons of Korah. So the sons of Korah, if you read in number 16, they are uh, the lineage of a man named Korah. And Korah led a rebellion against Moses and the people of Israel. And Korah himself was swallowed up by the ground, along with 200, 250 other people who were consumed by fire for rebelling against Moses and rebelling against God's leadership in Israel. And if you read further in Numbers, in Numbers 26, you'll see that uh, Korah himself uh, and Korah's sons survive. So, so Korah's lineage doesn't die out, but Korah himself was consumed by the ground and, and those who followed him in the rebellion against Israel were consumed. But Korah's lineage doesn't die out. And so what this is telling us is at the very least, 
the sons of Korah who are composing this psalm are responsible for carrying on worship in a true and right fashion that's submitted to God and to his leadership. So the sons of Korah may be writing from a place of having a deep understanding in their family history of knowing that God expects us to worship him in spirit and in truth. And as we look at the psalm today, written by or that's attributed to the sons of Korah, there are kind of three main categories that I would put our observations into about the realities of what this psalm describes. And all of these realities aren't things that are typical for kind of your children's movie, very easy to understand plot that's uplifting type of psalm. And the first reality of that psalm or of this psalm, I would say is the reality of sadness. Uh, You know, right in the first few lines there, you see this phrase, my tears have been my food all day and night. I can't think of a, a deeper expression of sadness than for someone to be saying, I've been crying so much day and night that I just feel like I'm feeding on my tears. And if you've been in a deep place of sadness before, maybe you've experienced something like that, where you're just grieving and you're so sad that you can't eat, you can't sleep, you can't do anything that's, that's productive. All you can do is cry and experience the sadness that you're in. And that's what the psalmist is saying. And the psalmist is even getting more at that when, when, it, when they're saying, you know, why are you downcast on my soul? This is mentioned twice, once at the beginning, once at the end. And then there's actually another reference to the middle of in, in the middle of the psalm as well. So I think the fact that the, the psalm ends, at least in 42 and, and 43 is a continuation of it. But 42 here ends with that same question. Why are you so downcast, my soul? What this tells us is, is a bit about the condition of, of human sadness and what it means to be Uh, someone who's made in the image of God, but living in a broken world. And one of the realities of human sadness and the reality of this psalm is that we can't always explain why we're sad. The psalmist looks back on times that they were praising God, if you look in verse 5, and then they look forward again to one day, I'll praise God again in verse 11. So in theory, what this simple exercise should do is say, okay, uh, things were hard in the past, things will get better in the future, so that should be the antidote to my sadness but it doesn't seem like it is. And I think the answer to that is, uh, you know, we, we don't really know at the end why the psalmist kind of can't resolve the issue. And I think this text can teach us the answer to that is, is one of the things that we, we shouldn't do with sadness is think that thinking about the future or thinking about things being better in the past kind of earthly situations is going to be the antidote to resolving the sadness that we deal with. And I would say, in particularly, for those of us who are walking alongside people who are struggling with sadness, struggling with depression, struggling with trying to get out of a dark place, one of the things that, that, that isn't necessarily a fully orbed way to deal with sadness is just to tell someone, oh, you know, cheer up, things will get better. You, you've got a bright future ahead of you. At least not saying that alone. And the reason I say that is because if you look in the beginning of the psalm, like I said, the psalmist knows that things are going to get better in the future, that things were good in the past. So this isn't necessarily an ultimate reality that they're experiencing right now. But then read in the beginning of the psalm. The psalmist opens up with this vivid picture of a deer panting for streams of water. I think of, uh, I, don't, I don't necessarily see many deer, but I do see a lot of dogs being walked around here. And a dog, especially in the summertime, it's been chasing the tennis ball it's outside and then it gets inside and you put the water in front of it and it's like, it can't drink it fast enough. That's sort of the picture that's being painted here. It's this deep longing for relief, for being in the presence of God. And that's what the psalmist is saying. That's how the psalmist, that's how deeply the psalmist yearns to know God. And not just to know God, but to see God and to stand before God. 
So the psalmist has these heavenly longings that won't be satisfied by earthly consolations. So that's why thinking about things getting better in the future or thinking about things being better in the past isn't necessarily a full answer to the sadness that the psalmist is dealing with. And when we're walking through pain and when we're walking through suffering, it's possible that pain and suffering are there just to remind us that those heavenly longings that we have won't be fully met by earthly solutions or earthly consolations. And I think the psalmist gets at this even more when they say, deep calls out to deep, the roar of your waterfalls has gone over me. If you've ever seen any pictures of the ocean or ships that are lost at sea, when they get really far out, it's actually pretty terrifying to see the waves sometimes fluctuating 10, 20, 30 feet in a big boat that would seemingly overwhelm us here on land and just being tossed around like it's a toy. That's sort of what the psalmist is saying here, that there's this deep unsearchableness un, uh, of God and the ocean is the best way to describe it. It can be a beautiful place, but also a terrifying place. And the psalmist is saying the roar of your waterfall. So this isn't just a trickle, but your waterfalls, this deep abundance of who God is has gone over me. And God covers us in that abundance because the deep unexplainable sadness that we have is no match for the deep unsearchable truth of who God is. And his waves and his breakers are the ones that are going over the psalmist. What that means is that any emotion that we experience, be it sadness, be it depression, we can at the very least say that God isn't aware of it. And even more than that, we can say that God isn't ignorant of it. Because in this psalm, the waves and the breakers that are rolling over the psalmist, the deep uh, truths of, of, of life that they're experiencing are attributed to God. Your waves and your breakers have gone over me. I think this picture crystallizes even more when we look into the New Testament and we see uh, Jesus with the, with the disciples and they're out on a boat and they come to uh, a storm and, and the boat is taking in water, right? This is a, a sort of another way of, I think, explaining that same truth. And when the disciples are out there scared, thinking they're going to drown, Jesus is in the bottom of the boat sleeping. So God is in the bottom of the boat sleeping while the disciples are thinking they're going to drown. And the disciples say probably what most of us would say, right? Don't you care if we drown? Why, why aren't you doing something about this? And so Jesus wakes up and he calms the storm. He commands the winds and the waves. The same God that commands the winds and the wave in Psalm 42 was the same God that was with the disciples in the boat and commanded the wind and the waves and told them to be still. But the fact that God can command the wind and the waves doesn't automatically remove the reality of the fact that sometimes in life it feels like we're in a storm. Just like for the disciples, Jesus being in the boat with them did not automatically remove the reality of the fact that when that storm was happening, they were scared. And what the psalmist is longing for is what the disciples actually had in this story, in the Gospels. The, the psalmist is longing for the, to be in the presence of the living God, to stand before him. And that's what the disciples had. But our reality today is probably more like what the psalmist had and less like what the disciples had in their time. We don't have God personified standing next to us. We can't stand in the literal presence of God. So what that means for us is it's okay to be sad. We have deep earthly longings that cannot be, or we have deep heavenly longings that cannot be met by the earthly realities that we experience on a day-to-day -day basis. And our longings are pointing to something deeper that just like the psalmist, we long to stand before the presence of God. So when we're walking with others through pain, through suffering, through sadness, we can be patient. Our deepest longings won't be met 
on this earth. And we live in a world where sadness is a reality. It's a reality in this psalm and it's repeated over and over again. One of the other realities we see repeated in this psalm in addition to sadness is the reality of persecution. These two probably honestly go hand in hand with each other. It's hard to read them and not think how they don't play off each other. But at the beginning of the psalm, there's a mention of enemies who are saying, where is your God? And then at the end, there's another mention of the enemies who are saying, where is your God? And, and persecution, I think a simple definition from a Christian perspective, persecution is when others use their words or actions to discourage us from following Jesus's teaching. Now, obviously the psalmist does probably doesn't have a fully, uh, completely formed understanding of who Jesus is, but that's sort of what's happening here, right? Where is your God? Why aren't you uh, seeing or experiencing the benefits of this God. The psalmist, in, in a way, we could say, is being persecuted. And in addition to persecution, we see the taunting, we see the mocking in this uh, psalm. We see another category and another definition we should draw it as well. In addition to persecution, we see oppression, the oppression of the enemy in verse 10. Why do I go on mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. This same word, oppression, uh, from a, a definitional standpoint, I think is important to draw out because it's thrown around a lot today, right? People will say this person or that person is oppressed. There's a, a Christian theologian named Carl Ellis, who I think gives a really simple to remember, easy definition of what it, oppression is. Carl Ellis says, sin plus power equals oppression. Now, the term oppression here is the same word to use to describe the oppression that the Israelites were under when they were enslaved by the Egyptians. And if you read the book of Exodus, you'll actually see that the, the Israelites and the Egyptians both sin against each other. But the term oppression is used to describe the way the Egyptians treated the Israelites because the Egyptians had power in terms of their numeric value. They had military might and the ability to physically enslave and oppress the Israelites. So that's what the psalmist is saying here. The opposition I'm facing is more than just uh, people throwing words back and forth to each other, but there's some concern that there's an actual, real, physical oppression where the enemy can use some form of power to sin against me. So that oppression is a concern for the psalmist. And that can, same concern that the psalmist has is a concern that I've heard uh, many other Christians in America begin to express as well, that we may be facing some form of oppression. Now, there are many angles to, to this conversation when it relates to the church in America, but you could start with the basic idea that statistically Christianity is on the decline here. Uh, when you talk about in relation to the actual number of people, there are more and more secular ideas and the most popular is just no religion at all. And so secular ideas, secular values are becoming more popular. They're finding their place in more and more governmental policy and Christian ideas, Christian policies may find fewer and fewer um, opportunities to be represented in government or in society. So the basic idea of that is that because Christian ideas aren't necessarily at the center um, or, or uh, continuing to be put at the center of our society, that Christians may face some form of explicit persecution beyond just the verbal disagreement, right, that you get when you meet someone who maybe doesn't like Christians. And I can't predict the future. Uh, maybe that's true. But persecution seems to be the reality for the psalmist here. And in this passage, we have no guarantee that God has any obligation to remove it. The psalmist just confides in God about the experience that my enemy goes on bragging and saying, where is your God taunting me? But if we zoom out a bit and we take a look at what Jesus said in the Gospels, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So it seems like in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus almost normalizes the idea of people following Jesus, facing some form of opposition, and specifically facing some type of persecution that we as believers can expect that. Now, it's important to draw in here, the persecution Jesus is talking about is the same persecution we talked about in our definition. It's persecution for righteousness sake, right? Persecution for obeying Jesus's teaching. Proverbs 17 talks about, you know, the one whose tongue is perverse falls into trouble. So we're not talking about uh, having natural consequences for doing things that aren't godly. That's not persecution, but persecution for following Jesus. And in fact, if you read further, further in the New Testament, Second uh, Timothy 3.12 Paul says this to Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Francis Chan is a uh, missionary as well as a pastor, and he preached a sermon one time. I still remember it to this day. I looked it up and made sure it still exists. It was about 10 years ago. And in this sermon, all he did was go through every chapter in the New Testament, starting in Matthew, going to Revelation, and just read a verse that talked about how Christians would suffer or be persecuted. And that was a sermon, just every book, verse after verse after verse, persecution, suffering, persecution, suffering, persecution, and suffering. So if Christians in America lose social capital, lose power, lose influence, it could be that we're actually moving closer to what the Bible would consider to be the normal life for a believer. Furthermore, it also could be possible that God's plan for redeeming the world doesn't directly align with the comfort of Christians in America today, like you and me. Let me draw an example of what I mean. Uh, the Gospel Coalition just put out an article, I think it was last week, about the fastest growing Christian movement in the world. This movement has gone from 10,000 Christians to 1 million Christians in, in just 20 years. This church movement is happening in Iran. Iran is a, is a Muslim theocracy. That means that the Muslim religion is the law of the land. That's how they determine the laws of society. And in Iran, you can be thrown in jail for sharing your faith. Iranian Christians have been flogged just for drinking persecution wine. Iran deals with a much more explicit form of oppression than we do here in America. It's not just words or people saying they don't like Christians or making fun of Christians, but it's actual actions that impact day to day how believers in Iran can live. But despite that, Christianity in Iran is exploding, gone from 10,000 to 1 million in 20 years. And I think the reason for that comes out in our third reality of the Psalm. In addition to the reality of sadness, in addition to the reality of oppression, there's another reality in the Psalm that I think is helpful that kind of paints a, a broader picture around this entire uh, Psalm that, that's somewhat dark, but I think it ties it together well. And the way I got to this one is, is sometimes when you're just processing your own experience or when you're reading the Psalms, Sometimes I found it helpful to take a description of what's happening, a description of, of what the person's environment is, or the psalmist who's writing what their environment is, a description of what their experience is, and then a description, uh, which is our third reality here that we'll talk about. So first, categorizing the psalmist's experience, right? This is, these, are, these are just kind of my free text notes, but I just try to pull out all the places in the psalm where the psalmist was talking about what was happening to them. So these are just kind of free text notes, right? The psalmist is saying in their experience, my soul is thirsting for God. My tears have been my food all day and night. 
I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead a procession. Why are you downcast, my soul? Why are you at turmoil within me? My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember. Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning? Why are you downcast on my soul? Why are you at turmoil within me? So if we just read the experience of the psalmist, it actually seems pretty dark, right? Not, not the most uplifting thing you've read today. And if we draw it out further and look at the psalmist's environment, we still have a pretty bleak picture. So this is the environment. This is what the psalmist is describing that's going on around them. Where is your God? Deep calls out to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. The oppression of the enemy. Why do I go on mourning? As a deadly wound within my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? So our first two categories, this situation just gets deeper. If you look at the experience of the psalmist, as well as the environment that the psalmist describes around them. But then there's our third category, which is the description of who God is. So if you read the way the psalmist describes God, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. The house of God is a place where there are shouts and songs of praise. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is within me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, hope in God, for again shall I praise him, my salvation and my God. Again, these are just kind of my free text pulling of places uh, from the psalm that it seems like the psalmist is describing God. So the first two categories are pretty dark, right? But what separates this psalm from just plain old complaining and grumbling is the third category there, is the way the psalmist describes God. This is what separates lament from just plain old complaining and groaning. The psalmist still has this strong reality of who God is, that our soul thirsts for God, that he's worthy of our praise, that he commands his steadfast love, that he's our rock, that he's our praise, that he's our salvation. All these things are still true even when we're in the deepest valley of sadness or the deepest valley of oppression. And in fact, if you were to just read the third category, the, the one that says God, it sounds like one of the classic Psalms. It sounds like a Psalm 23 or a Psalm 145 or a Psalm 90. But life happens and we get sad and we feel like there's opposition and we face hardship in life. And that's okay. Because the reality is God is still sovereign in our sadness. Of all the things that, we could say about God and all the things this Psalm says about God, perhaps particularly what we need to remember when we're down, when we're in a hard place in life is to remember that God is sovereign and all the reality and all the oppression and all the sadness that the Psalmist is living in. The Psalmist is still able to say, you send the waves and the wind, your waves and breakers have gone over me. You command your steadfast love. In other words, the Psalmist is saying God is sovereign. And when I use the word sovereign, what I mean is God is all powerful and in control. That's a simple definition of God being sovereign. When we experience sadness and when we experience oppression, God is all powerful and God is in control. And I realize that can be a difficult statement to swallow. We could probably all think of times in our lives that have been really hard. We could think of times in history where people have experienced really gross oppression and, and things that are even hard to think of or, or recount. But the good news is, is that while the reality of God is sovereign and our sadness and oppression is true, God is also merciful. I think the psalmists who are attributed to this, I think the, the, the sons of Korah who are attributed to this psalm certainly have a, an idea of God's mercy. Like I talked about, the sons of Korah uh, 
were descendants of a man named Korah who led that rebellion against Moses and the Israelites. And Korah was swallowed up by the earth. And if you read the account in number 16, the Israelites who were standing there were also scared just by seeing it, that they wouldn't get swallowed up as well. So you'll see that standing before a sovereign God in number 16, a God who's all powerful and in control can be a terrifying thing. It was terrifying for the sons of Korah. It was terrifying the Israelites and they weren't even swallowed up. They were just there and they were terrified by God's might and God's power. Standing before a sovereign God can be terrifying like it was for Korah and the ones who followed him, but can also be comforting like it was for the disciples who were in the boat with Jesus. And I think in order to reconcile with the sovereign God, the psalmist realized that they needed something, something that would allow them to have the fate of the disciples and not the fate of those who rebelled against God, like Korah and his followers. If you read in Psalm 42, verse 11 specifically, this is the King James Version, and it just gets a little more of a literal translation of, of what the original Hebrew says. This is in verse 11. Why art thou downcast, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I yet shall praise him again, who is the health of my countenance and my God. Now the health, that phrase there comes from a Hebrew phrase that's often translated, uh, uh, um, instead of just uh, salvation, the health of my countenance is, is often translated salvation or deliverance in other parts of scripture, the health, that phrase there. Of my countenance, is often translated face or presence. So the King James, the reason I put that there is because it gives a more literal translation of the Hebrew phase, meaning the one who saves my face or the one who saves face. And I think that makes sense considering the family history of Korah. Their ancestors were wiped out. They didn't save face as they stood before God. But these ancestors, these, these people who followed in Korah's line knew that they could long for something that would allow them to stand before the sovereign God and not be consumed. And that's something is translated now in our modern translations, salvation. In the midst of all the sadness and oppression, our ultimate longings are crying out for something deeper than just our situation getting better. We long to stand before God and we long to satisfy him like a deer drinking from streams of water. And that's what salvation actually gives us. Jesus gives us a clear invitation to do just that in John 4, 14. Whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become a, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Life in this passage for the psalmist was not easy. Life is, wasn't easy for many Christians in the New Testament. Life is not easy for Christians around the world in places like Iran who are facing persecution. Life may not be easy for us. But if we're in Christ, we can be assured that our sufferings will be worth it. They will not be in vain. Jesus is promising here eternal life, but he's not promising an easy life. We live in a reality of a broken world, a world where there's a strong reality of sadness, like the psalmist described here, your soul being downcast day and night, a world where there's a reality of oppression, where it may seem like the enemy has won temporarily and they've got to, they've been given a situation where they can taunt and say, where is your God or where is God in this situation? It seems like he's not here. But we also live in a world in a reality now, even still, where God is sovereign. And the reason the psalmist isn't complaining is the realization that God is still powerful and God is still in control, even when we're sad, even when we're facing opposition, even when we feel like we're facing some form of persecution or oppression. 
God is still sovereign in our sadness. And one day we'll stand before him. One day we'll each be like Korah. We'll each be like the disciples. We'll get to stand before God. And whether or not we're wiped out or whether or not we experience God calming, comforting, and bringing us into eternal life goes back to the phrase that is in the psalm, God being our salvation and Jesus being the ultimate one that makes us acceptable and able to stand before God and have him lift us up. There's an author who um, I really appreciate. I can't remember who, but they, they said, I figure out the books I need to write uh, by asking myself, what do I want to read? And this sermon from a preparation standpoint was kind of a sermon that I felt like I needed to hear um, for many reasons. This has been a season of, of sadness and of just feeling downcast. And as I've gotten time to spend and to walk in this Psalm, what I've realized is salvation and, and getting to know Jesus and knowing Jesus, repenting, turning from him, walking with him means just like we read in Psalm 23, that even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that we fear no evil because he's with us. But him being with us doesn't remove the valley. It doesn't remove the fact that we can feel like we're in the shadow of death, that we face opposition, we face hardship in life. And in fact, that's okay. God is sovereign and God is still with us in our sadness. And as we take time, we're going we're gonna to sing, I think, Psalm 42 to reflect. I just want us to, to maybe reflect on that fact, to know that we can be patient with ourselves, that we can not try to figure out emotionally where all the emotions are coming from that maybe don't feel the most ideal at the moment, but know that God's with us right now and know that if we're in Christ, that we'll be with him forever. And if we haven't trusted in Christ or we don't know if we've trusted in Christ, this is a simple opportunity to turn uh, and do what the Bible calls repent, to turn from trusting in ourselves and trusting in our emotions and trusting in our own good works to be able to stand before God and to trust fully in Jesus and to trust in the life that he lived on our behalf that will allow us to stand confidently before God and not be wiped out and trust that he is the one who can navigate and walk us through the, the valleys of life.